Assalamu alaikum everyone. Welcome to the Renovatio podcast. My name is Asa'at Tarsin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Father Stephen Gregg. Father Stephen Gregg has been a contributor to the Renovatio podcast. He's a monk of the Cistercian Abbey of Our Lady of Dallas in Texas. And after undergraduate studies in classics and in medieval studies at the University of the South, he entered the Cistercian Monastery in 2006. He's currently a doctoral candidate at the University of Dallas and is teaching currently both at the University of Dallas and the Cistercian Preparatory School, where he is teaching English literature, grammar, music, Latin, philosophy, and theology. We're very happy to have you here today, Father Stephen. Thank you for having me. And today we're going to be discussing a particularly pertinent topic given uh, the, the current circumstances, and that is solitude. You wrote a piece for Renovatio in the spring 2020 edition about solitude. We talked a little bit about this in, in other podcasts, but I wanted to ask you, given the fact that we're in the midst of this global pandemic, and you know everyone living their isolated lives has had deleterious effects in many ways. What inspired you to write about solitude in particular? Well, the the idea for the article began completely independently of the pandemic experience. It just happened to coincide because it arises from my own monastic life. For a few years, I had been gathering quotations about solitude, different writers' ways of thinking about solitude, uh, the pains of solitude, and especially the positive aspects of solitude, I'd been sort of gathering in a notebook. And then Renovatio contacted me and said, well, you know, a few years ago, you wrote an article on the book of Job and suffering, and we're currently in the middle of a great deal of suffering. So maybe there's something you could write about and I immediately responded, well, I've been contemplating this question of solitude for a while, and I bet I could find a way to speak of it in terms of suffering. It's curious because when I was gathering you know, my ideas before that request, I was mostly thinking of the positive aspects of solitude, the need for more solitude, and for maybe we could say better solitude, for the ability to be with myself which is something as a young monk, you have to learn. You come out of college and you join a monastery. There's a lot of things that have got to shift in your just daily life. So it was helpful. I, then I began to think, okay, well, how can we explain the bad aspects of solitude and then move to the question of its real necessity? And then the other, the other side of it is what I try to do just by, by vocation. You know, I try to think, how does a religious person respond differently to a common question. I mean, everyone has problems of being crowded or being alone, but how is it different for someone who is in a, a faith tradition of some substantial kind, you know? So it was really like I actually, I literally had a stack of notes over here by my desk. When they emailed me, I immediately responded, oh, I'm sure I've got plenty of things, <laughs> almost too many things I could write about to meditate on on solitude. Because in my life, solitude has always been a great blessing in many ways. And I was always, even as a child, my parents would say, it's strange how happy you are to be on your own. 
and to be in your room and read or play. And, you know, it was strange to them. <laughs> mm, mm. And uh, maybe a sign of the monastic vocation somehow. But in the monastery, we're always moving back and forth because we, we have a very active, although carefully organized life, and then a great deal of time in my own room every day. So it's a, a, so in that sense, for me, it's a practical question and has been for, for a decade. Your essay, at least in the first half, I thought it was very interesting. You focus on the relationship between solitude and suffering. And now you're, you're, you just shared with me that you had initially just intended to talk about some of the positive aspects. It becomes clear to me reading it that you could have penned an essay on the necessity for solitude or the benefits of solitude, but you clearly see some relationship between suffering and solitude. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and that's what I, in many ways, discovered by writing the article <laughs> and thinking through just what is so bad about solitude. On the other, how is every form of suffering related to, sort of at a more existential level, related to solitude? It's an interesting thing to think about. We know that the moment that we can share our pain, that we can talk to someone about our pain— or where someone has the same difficulty we have, or where we are suffering as a community, is somehow much easier to bear up with than when there's some suffering that we think we cannot tell anybody about. I think, I, in a way, in my mind, since I spend a lot of my, I mean, almost all my day, I'm working with young people. At the, we have a middle school and a high school, and then I'm at the university. So, a lot of young people face very puzzling problems, and the real danger is when they think that they can't talk to anybody about it because uh, they're uh, afraid somehow to share. So I began to think, you know, even physical suffering, you know, like if, if I have a bad leg, I mean, the reason that that's bad is not only the pain, but that it prevents me from keeping up with other people. It makes me rely on others in a way that's no longer, I feel kind of free, you know? So there's a kind of isolation in suffering. That's what I wanted to, to sort of meditate upon, you know? So the, the real experience of suffering in some ultimate way is about my being alone. Strangely, so part of the, the beginning point, although it's the last thing I quote in the article, <laughs> I think, I remember when I first began working at our school. This is before I even joined the monastery. I was here for a year before I joined the monastery. I shared an office with a teacher who had been here for a very long time, and he had on his wall that quote from C.S. Lewis about hell being th the person who wants mm -hmm. to be alone. <laughs> they, 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 they want total isolation, and it's this complete being wrapped in oneself and losing the taste for the other. And I remember thinking, yeah, it's interesting to think of punishment, of suffering. The ultimate suffering is not God inflicting a penalty on you. It's just you being stuck by yourself and having no way out. And you need to learn that taste for the other. So that's what I began to reflect on, is that maybe suffering is a kind of, of invitation to look to others, right? Mm. And the danger, even with the pandemic, the curious thing with the pandemic is, you know, we were all suffering in one way or another from it. I mean, we had one monk 
older monk pass away here in the monastery from COVID and then various other people around besides just the inconvenience of everything we would try to do as a community, you know? Mm -hmm. So even though the whole nation, the whole world was suffering, so there was a a chance for a great deal of community. (laughs) It hadn't quite worked out that way. Um, There's been, in a way, an an aggravation of a lot of the divisions, Mm -hmm. you know? So there, there's a, a way in which, you know, the, the worst symptom somehow has been the being, being locked in away from people. Yeah. You, you talk about, and this was a very fascinating passage to me, where I believe you were, you're quoting Burton, talking about the dangers of isolation. Yeah. Um, if, we, yeah. if we can focus on, on that for a moment and about how sometimes isolation can lead to melancholy, can eventually turn one into a monster or a beast. And so... It's just sort of had me wondering, you know, in a, in a pre-modern sense, what kind of isolation would lead to that versus what kind of isolation does one experience in the modern world that despite being surrounded by so many people, I can be totally isolated in my own activity on a device. I can have headphones in and completely not, e- not even share in the sights and sounds that are around me, that we've never been more connected and yet we are incredibly isolated? And what sort of cumulative impact does something like that have on society? Mm. My feeling is it's true that this is a much more a problem of our contemporary moment than something like Robert Burton in the 17th century. So the, the opportunities, let's say, for isolation were fewer when families regularly lived all in one room. The notions of privacy that we not only value, but that we consider like a fundamental right <laughs> that needs to be guarded by law and carefully watched over. And I think just is is almost hard to imagine 500 years ago, 300 years ago, where everything was so much more common, so more shared in common, you know? I mean, if you think of something like Thomas More's Utopia, you know, one of the one of the things that distinguishes utopia is its institution of a radically communal way of life, so that you're all having dinner together, all the the meals are set, you can the houses are all kind of the same size, you know. So they must have known the danger of I th- I think in many ways related to the growth in prosperity, just financial prosperity, building a house that's big enough for there to be space between your world and the outside world, you know, a kind of a castle. That began a while ago. What, what we're dealing with today is, you know, that even our work, even our activity is isolating, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, working Absolutely. in a cubicle, crunching numbers as an accountant although it has a very important effect on human life and on people's daily lives, you don't interact with that at all. So I think what, what Burton, I love that, that passage from Burton is, is beautiful and like all of Burton is just sort of crazy. But you're thinking those times when you don't have anything to do, you're free of responsibility, you're on your own, that sounds good. You know, like I'm, I'm now I can relax. Now I can relax. And I've got no cell phone. There's no way for anyone to contact me. And you feel like that's when 
I'll be able to just be at peace with the universe. I think he's right that that's not quite how it works. There's a common expression, you know, if, if someone is not busy, but they're not really doing anything, they'll say, oh, I'm just here with my demons. You know, like mm. I'm in my room by myself, yeah, you know, yeah. and what what happens is I start thinking of all the all the anxieties of life begin pressing on me. And so he compares the soul to like an overwound clock and it just starts speeding up and speeding up and it starts to sort of consume itself. That can happen even without a cell phone. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I remember uh, such experiences where I was, you know, completely out of contact with the human race. I was hiking in the woods and no one knew where I was and I had no phone and sitting down and, and suddenly sometimes real terrifying pressures come to you. <laughs> the good question is, I mean, and, and I, I feel like in some ways I have a lot of ideas about it, but my, my experience might be different because I live in a monastery. So I have a lot of opportunity to be with people even just day to day. I mean, we have dinner all together every day. I don't use a cell phone regularly. I have one, but it's not necessary for anything that I do immediately. I don't even mm -hmm. have to do email all day. I can set a time of day where I'm going to check my email. So compared to, I think of my brother who also is here in Dallas, you know, who is constantly needing to be connected and responding in a really rapid and digital way. But it does seem to me that there's a sense in which our capacity for connection, of course, is increased as evidenced by this very occasion. But I didn't have to fly to California to do this. And that's a great benefit, right? On the other hand, our capacity for isolation is quite severe almost, you know, like to compare the experience, say, of going to the library or going to a bookstore to the experience of shopping on Amazon, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. On Amazon, I have, I have access to a great deal more, and I can read the reviews by th sometimes thousands of people, you know? And yet I don't find it consoling, <laughs> you know? The way mm -hmm. that bumping into somebody at a bookstore who recommends something to me might happen. So, yeah. what, so one thought on that, last thought on that. One of the things that the technological connectivity doesn't have is the kind of randomness of encounters. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a city with a public square or like at a church on a random Sunday or in a bookstore full of all kinds of people, you will likely bump into something you did not plan to look for. Mm -hmm. But if I go on Amazon, it's going to be what I looked for and then what they think I might want to buy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So even in an occasion like this, we can connect, but we're not likely to have any random experience based on, you know, if you were to actually come into my room here, you would see all the weird things I've got in my room, all the books, and you might, you might see something that you also have, and mm -hmm. suddenly we can have a conversation about that, and it's totally unplanned. So the, the technology demands a kind of efficiency that is not quite the human norm. Yeah. I think it also allows an activity to be so self-centered where, you know, I think about sort of what might be considered an inconvenience nowadays of getting in a car and driving to, you know, the strip mall that has the bookstore and walking down different aisles and have, you know, having to get dressed in a way that's presentable to being outside and greeting strangers and, you know, 
there's a kind of selflessness that has to come out because I'm go I'm going from private into public. But with Amazon, one can, you know, be still in bed in their pajamas and only see the things that they're interested in. And so I think I think there's something that the technology is doing that's creating a kind of isolation that I think is is far more selfish than it is the kind that 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 uh, I, you know you have that beautiful passage from Montaigne about when it becomes time to turn in on oneself and and, and do more work. I actually think this is probably a, a great thing to, to sort of zoom in on. You know, isolation is, you know, there's a very popular term nowadays, which is called self-care. I'm, I'm sure you've heard this, that, you know, you need time for self-care. And you talk about, you know, maybe a, a something that's a similar concept, which is about, you know, trying to utilize solitude only for the purpose of leisure. But Montaigne, in this passage that you quote, and, and it's, it's probably the longest quote you have in here, and I, I can see why it's, 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 it's such a brilliant quote, but he talks about this back shop, right? And I'm, I'm just going to read a short passage where Montaigne says, uh, we should have wife, children, goods, and above all health if we can, but we must not bind ourselves to them so strongly that our happiness depends on them. We must reserve a back shop all our own entirely free, in which to establish our real liberty and our principal retreat and solitude. Here, our ordinary conversation must be between us and ourselves, and so private that no outside association or communication can find a place. Here, we must talk and laugh as if without wife, without children, without possessions, without retinue and servants, so that when the time comes to lose them, it will be nothing new to us to do without them. We have a soul that can be turned upon itself it can keep itself company. It has the means to attack and the means to defend, the means to receive and the means to give. Let us not fear that in this solitude we shall stagnate in tedious idleness. And this quote, which I think there's, there's so much to unpack here, but I think one of the things that jumps out at me in Montaigne's, um, you know, his, this uh, area boutique, right, the back shop, is something about the purpose and proportionality of solitude that, you know, that it seems to be, and this definitely re resonates with, 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 with me um, based on my understanding of the Islamic tradition, that isolation isn't a lifestyle per se uh, in, in the Islamic tradition, but more an exercise with a, with, with a fixed purpose. And so we're out in the world in the daytime, but ideally one should, you know, maintain a night vigil, for example. This kind of, and this is getting into the God and solitude part of your article, but, you know, I think the purpose and proportionality of solitude is, is really essential to finding this golden mean that you've been talking about, you know, where too much solitude can be a problem and too little. What do you think should be the purpose and proportionality from your understanding? Yeah, I love the Montaigne essay on solitude, which is, mm -hmm. in another sense, where this essay began. I when I wrote this essay, I thought of myself as trying to really just emulate Montaigne's essay, <laughs> but to add my point as points of view, yeah, yeah. particularly the religious point of view. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. So the the great the, solitude is a form of suffering when it is purposeless. <laughs> he says we have to prepare a room for ourselves. We need to be able to be alone, just as well as we need to be able to be in company. These are essential, you know, it's not just ballast for the soul, but that is what the soul is supposed to do. It's just that's the function. We need to sort of have a kind of inner residence 
or else we can't do well the other things, you know? So that's part of the puzzle of the, of the, you know, the proportionality. If I want to be on my own well, then I need to have something outside that I'm, you know, considering and I have the images with me. I may have a text that I have with me or a prayer or I, you know, there's, there's something with me in my solitude I've brought in, you know, and then in order to do well in the world, or as he, you know, he, he imagines sort of on the, the, the shop end, you know, mm-hmm. I'm doing business out front and then I have the back room. If one of those is going badly, the other will also go badly, right? So to do business well, I need to have a security behind me in my isolation. And to be at peace on my own, I need a sense of having managed well the things with other people. I wish I knew better how to balance them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, it's, I, the balance is very frequently a matter of temperament. You know, as some people are simply outgoing, some are not. And so we have to work at the other side. But it is so true. I mean, I can think in some sense of like the times of meditative prayer in the monastery, which is curious because we do it as a group, but it's all silent and individual. So we're all there, mm-hmm. but we're all considering different things, but there's a time for it. So it's communal without being shared. (laughs) In order for that to work, I need the moments of conversation with these people to also work. The moments of of work outside together, active work, to have to be operating. I think we all know that like somehow if I have a really tough job, it's easier to do it if at home, I have a loving family that's not, not just because I want to work for the sake of the family, but somehow I can operate with a living soul in public because at, in the treasure house back here <laughs> of my heart, there's a true relationship. And mm-hmm. so also, life at home is harder if my life outside the home is, is terrible, right? So the two things simply are it's more like like they kind of mirror each other somehow, you know. That's the I mean, what the article I was writing, I mean, in a way it's a mystery of of how to balance these things. Yeah. That we somehow need we need both. And so we're as a consequence, we're always kind of uneasy. When we're out in public, we wish we could go home. When we're at home, we wish we could go out. But that that might be somehow good, you know, that that the this that's a like this that that's what suffering is, is always needing to have that other part also. We're always needing to surpass. So when we're outside, we're needing to go into the inner room and make sure things are okay. When we're in the inner room, we're also pulled outside. That's sort of what suffering is. And it's, it's the, the person, the human person kind of experiencing the boundary between self and other. And that boundary can be painful. Like what Montaigne is saying is if we, if we, if we have a certain mastery of this, not as a limit, but as a boundary, then it can be a matter of real mutual strength. You know, my inner life and my outer life can really become one life, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that actually speaks very much to, to probably more of an Islamic understanding, which would see, you know, these things as spheres that, you know, need to be harmonized rather than sort of isolated and, and suppressed. I mean, you know, a, a spiritual seclusion does have its role 
something obviously all of the prophets did, but it's always for sort of this apportioned amount of time. And in order to develop a type of spiritual connection with God and, and, and control of, of, of the ego and the self, that allows you to be in the world much better than, than you were before the, uh, b- before the retreat. So there's, you know, the, the, there is a sort of yin-yang relationship in which one you know, retreats in the night and in isolation in order to be more fully engaged. There's an interesting tradition from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, where he had three companions, and there's different narrations, so there's probably more than three, but different people came and they asked about his night vigils and, and, and his worship, and, and they, were, they, they said, if this, is the, if this is the final prophet of God to humanity, then we're, who are we? We have to do much more. And one sworn oath that he would you know, pray night vigil every night, and never, never sleep through a night again. And the other said, I will fast every single day continuously. And the other said, I will, I will never marry um, just to devote myself to God. And, and it's interesting. So word of this gets back to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And he says, and he, and he calls them to him and he said, you know, I, n- none of you is, 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 is going to be closer to God than I. And I pray some nights and I sleep on other nights and I fast some days and I eat on other days. And I and I and I marry, uh, and whoever and the 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 closing statement is, is is very important I think for Muslims. And he says, whoever seeks a way other than my way will not be of me. And so there is this interesting moderation in which the exercise has its place, but it doesn't overtake, you know, life in a way that 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 would put it out of balance. I guess in in, in an Islamic understanding. And so in that is this. That there is a purpose of taming the ego, but also coming into complete harmony with human nature. And so I think that's, that's one of the things that I really liked about Montaigne's, you should have wife, children, and goods, and health, but be ready. This is the, the part that I loved is to be ready to lose them as if, you know, to, uh, it, because it would be nothing new to you because you can do without them. And there's a spiritual sort of detachment. I mean, this is something that the, the Islamic uh, mystical tradition discusses quite thoroughly is what is detachment? Uh, and, and most of the scholars would say that it's, it's not necessarily living a life of, of actual poverty when you have the means to do otherwise, but it's to be detached such that you would have equanimity if you lost property, that if something happened that you wouldn't, you wouldn't feel this kind of attachment. And so I think you know, there, there is something about the need for seclusion in order to develop detachment from, from the world and, and, and all of its you know, sparkling and dazzling distractions. Yeah, I think that's very true. Detachment for its own sake, that sounds like suffering, you know, mm-hmm. like amp- yeah. amputa- amputation, you know? Yeah, yeah. So in the Christian tradition, and we hear it a lot in the monastery, you know, there are the sayings of Christ, like, he who keeps his life will lose it. He who loses his life will save it. Right, so the the way to real life is through the loss of life, right? But he says it's what we call the promise of the hundredfold. He says whoever loses mother and father and wife and lands and children for my sake will have a hundredfold wives and mothers and brothers and children and lands and persecutions and eternal life in the world to come. So the, it's a puzzling passage because it's, I mean, it's paradoxical, but the idea is that by what we learn in the monastery is by a kind of seclusion, by giving up 
most immediately marriage and a family, mm-hmm. and then an independent pursuit of a career, right? I can't do that either. You know, I'm obedient to the needs of the community's work, right? Or as best I can be. I'm not, I might not be the best, <laughs> but I try to be. By doing that, by not having my own children, the promise is I will be available to have a hundred children, various people whom I will encounter not because of my own procreation, but because I'm here and I'm ready and available for them, you know? So being isolated is in fact what makes me accessible (laughs) somehow to other people. Like Montaigne says, you know, it's like, yes, have the wife, have the children, have work, have, you know, live, live the life of a human being, but do so in a way that you're allowed to be free with it, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not not that you're clinging to it so that the moment that it changes, you have to panic. If you're free with it, that means you're ready to to give. You're, 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 you can a- approach it at the proper way, in the proper way. Mm-hmm. And that is what we're doing. I mean, as monks, we are obviously taking upon ourselves a more stringent, like, ascetic practice than the average Christian or the average member of many religions, right? Mm-hmm. But the idea is that we're doing it as a, as a sign, you know, to the others that having, you know, not a sign that your life is terrible and worthless <laughs> and you need to, you need to panic, a hellfire is there, you know, uh, but rather a sign that the goods, how to, how to explain, I can sacrifice the goods of family because they're goods, <laughs> you know? Mm. The fact that I don't have a wife and children is precisely because I know that those things are precious, and so I can make an offering of them mm. in a way that I hope is, so it's not that it, it frees me, it's that so that it, my sacrifice can, can somehow provide freedom to the, to, to the others, <laughs> mm-hmm. can liberate them and maybe lead them to a more moderate living out of their human life, right? It's a that's a hard thing to understand theoretically, you know. So, in the monastery, we think of it mainly as it's an experience. That there are occasions where I feel that I experience detachment in a way that suddenly becomes fruitful, rather mm. than just experiencing a kind of self-imposed asceticism that's merely painful. Yeah. Where we can see the, as the, the prophet Isaiah has in the Bible, you know, it's like the, 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 the desert blossoms, you know, <laughs> or we, we think of it every day, but, you know, we begin each morning in the monastery with Psalm 95, which speaks of, uh, of, of, you know, God bringing water in the desert or in the rock, you know, <laughs> but that's, that's what we, we think that there is yeah. a life within it, you know. But, but that means that, yes, even in this more radical form of renunciation, the goal is a kind of liberating balance of life, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, I mean, at least uh, I think that the, the proportionality would be different. But, but I think that, that the spirit of that definitely is something common to, to many traditions. And I think, I mean, you know, that's one of the questions you get as a Muslim for fat, you know, during the, the month of Ramadan when you're fasting— People sort of asking, you know, they can't, they can't seem to understand what, you know, abstinence of food, drink, and intimacy for, for a month, what, what purpose does that serve? 
And so I, I definitely think that, you know, exercises of seclusion and isolation and, and, uh, and solitude are incredibly important to develop that attachment. There's a, a beautiful Islamic tradition that talks about how, you know, sometimes the wealthy man can be less detached to his wealth than the, the beggar on the street who sees him walking by because his, his heart's attachment and desire for it is so much greater and that one doesn't know who's, who's actually detached, the one who doesn't have or the one who does have. And the only test of that is, is, is you know, in, in, in the heart, and, and, and that's something that God knows. I wanted to switch gears to the, to the last part because I think uh, of your essay, because I think this is sort of really what we're leading up to, which is your section on God and solitude. And I think that's, that, that is, you've already talked about that being the purpose of, of isolation and solitude. I think it's pretty clear that most people nowadays have a hard time knowing how to make solitude uh, beneficial for themselves, but really to make it about God. So, how, you know, for our, our listeners here today, how do you think one can become more comfortable with solitude? And, and how does solitude help us to, to actually grow closer to God? Yeah, it, that's a challenge because we normally think that the way that we become closer to God will be by the communal prayer, the liturgical tradition of our religion, and by, you know, being with the other believers, you know. And even when we're in solitude, we may think what I need is to study the religious text or a theological elaboration of the text, you know. I, mm -hmm which in a way is inviting another voice into my solitude, you know? But uh, we ha it's sort of a puzzle to me in the monastery. So we, we all, uh, at the beginning of the day, in the early hours before our first prayer, and at the end of the day before our evening prayer, mm -hmm. we have about 30 minutes of time that are just silent prayer in the chapel. In the evening, it's we have what we call Eucharistic adoration. So uh, the the Eucharist, this is there too. So this this other level to it of a, of a sort of spiritual awareness that we're trying to make ourselves get back to <laughs> at the end of the day. But you know, many of us, when we go to that that period of prayer, we want to bring a book. We have something we're going to. It may just be scripture. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the standard. It could be the the monastic rule. It could be a spiritual book within the tradition that we're studying. It can't just be a novel, you know, to pass the time. And there's something very beautiful about that, that, you know, we recognize that there's a prayerfulness even in my study. You know, the mm -hmm. time of study is yeah. a time of prayer. But on the other hand, and this is the, the challenge I kind of try to present at the end of the essay, shouldn't I be able, you know, a, as a believer— Shouldn't I hope to be able one day merely to rest in the presence of God without needing a, a book or without needing a song where I will be able to rest in the experience of believing that God is there hmm. rather than having to reflect on a text that tells me God is there that I believe but that I'm I'm growing in belief. Shouldn't I hope one day to do that? So there's a famous story which I uh, I don't think I included in this essay. It might have been one of the things I cut, or one of the many things I couldn't include. So there was um, 
a very famous uh, Catholic saint named John Vianney. In the years after the French Revolution, a very, very holy priest, very badly educated, not a brilliant man, but an incredibly profound spiritual witness in rural France. And he one time came into the church and he saw a peasant sitting in the church just sort of staring blankly at the wall and observing the Eucharist where it is in the tabernacle, as we call it, but not reading, not praying the rosary, not doing none of the usual practices. And he asked the, the, the man, well, what is it that you do, you know, when you sit here all day? And he said, well, I look at him and he looks at me. <laughs> That's it. Wow. That's it. And somehow, you know, somehow that would be the conversion of, isol- of of solitude into a kind of resting in presence. So, I mean, the, the way I end in the essay, I just wonder, you know, for the really religious person, I don't know that true solitude is possible outside of something like hell, where you're excluding yourself from the presence, you know? But there's got to be this ability to, to kind of rest, you know, solitude as as rest, but with someone there. So like, uh, you know, we often appeal to the example of the, the couple that's been married for a long time doesn't have to constantly talk about stuff. You know, they, there's, a, there's a kind of mutual understanding so deep that they can simply be together. It's nice to think of my religious experience as having that in some way hmm. available to it as a, as a goal, you know. I mean, we think of heaven kind of in two ways. You know, on the one hand, heaven is that experience of my resting in the presence of God and having nothing in me that any more prevents me from mm. simply rejoicing in the glory of God. At the same time, by doing that, I'm united with what we call the communion of saints, right? So that we're all there together. It's also an intensely, as it were, public experience of rejoicing, but also of, as St. Paul says, of being no, being of knowing even as I am known. Just, I look at him, he looks at me. So that somehow is what we in the monastery, like we, I think a very holy monk has that experience maybe what, briefly and rarely. Once in a while, there's a sense of just being in tune, you know, and not needing to have anything else, not needing even to tell anybody. Right, mm-hmm. and that's when you know solitude transforms somehow. Yeah, it's interesting in the Islamic tradition. There's a maybe a, a slightly different way of looking at it. You know, there's stories of these the saints who, you know, in their spiritual practice and prayer and meditation, they attained this incredible uh, awareness and proximity to God. And as a result of that, after they've sort of annihilated their egos, they're able to go back into society and. And, and live amongst the people in ways that the people can't tell. They think that they're sitting with them, but while they're sitting with people in the marketplace, they're, 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 they're only communing with God. They, they, they really feel uh, connected. And there's a great you know, Sufi story where a young man is asking, you know, where is Saint so-and-so? And they keep telling him, oh, he's, he, he's, he's over there and he's in that part of the town and he keeps going and he really wants to meet this great saint. And he keeps getting directed until they say he's that shopkeeper right there. He was kind of surprised. He said, I thought he's a great saint. What's he doing in a marketplace trying to make money and 
this, that's what a worldly endeavor. And he, he goes up to the man and he says, are you, are you so-and-so? He said, yes. He said, I don't understand. You know, so they told me to go to you, that you're, you're, you're someone who's always, you know, remembering God. And here you are, you're in the marketplace. And, you know, the story goes that he takes a young man's hand and he presses it against his, his chest. And the man could feel with every vibration of his heartbeat that it was saying, Allah, 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 you know, that just God's name was constantly there with every pulse. And he said, even when I'm in the marketplace, I see no one but God. And so, I mean, that's, that's obviously sort of uh, a, a very difficult ideal to reach. But, but I think there is, uh, in, in our tradition, something about a reintegration, even, even after the solitude. But yeah, that, that, that was beautiful. Thank you for sharing. I think we have time for one more question, if you're okay with that. Uh, I wanted to ask you about, and this is, this is where kind of going to come full circle. You talked about the great commandment in, in the beginning of the essay. And it sort of, I think, is a, is a nice way to open up the essay, but a, also a, a great way to perhaps end the conversation in which the greatest commandment in the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so there clearly are these two, I guess, poles of the, the, the law that all of the prophets and the law hang on these two commandments. And yet there's an apparent tension on the one hand. And so how does seclusion either help or hinder the fulfillment of these two commandments? Because there clearly is a need for, at least like in this life, <laughs> there's, a, there's a clear back and forth between these two. Mm-hmm. Because we're not yet, we're not yet all like that saint you mentioned, who is, who we're not all capable <laughs> of, of in, of intuiting in the other, the presence of God, right? Which is what we're all aiming for in a way. I mean, there, there, there's a, an old saying that you know the the only real mistake. So a, Christ, a Christian, actually a cardinal who died maybe 20 years ago, said this: the only mistake you can make in life is to fail to recognize that the other person, that is Jesus Christ. That is God. And Jesus presents it that way too. You know, he says, well, when I was hungry, you fed me. And then the question is, well, when, when did I see you hungry? Well, whenever you saw mm-hmm. the least of my brothers. So that there's something. So the, the question is, how, how can my retreating into solitude help me discern when I go back into the world? How can my retreating have helped me discern the presence of the divine or to begin discerning the ways in which that other person is also part of the glory of God that I, in my solitude, have been trying to cultivate a taste for, mm-hmm. <laughs> to put it one way. And maybe that's one way of thinking of it. So if in solitude I am truly meditating on and I'm present to myself, I know what my afflictions are and I'm ready to face them squarely, and I know what my joys are, and I can face them honestly, and I can start to have a taste, you know, so the love your neighbor as yourself. Step one is I need to know how to love myself in some sense that's good, not just selfish. (laughs) So learning to understand what is the truest joy that I've experienced? What are the real pains that I've experienced that I know are not trivial? Mm-hmm. Now that I look back on them, then I can, be- and I can begin to understand the joys and the pains of other people better, right? So I can start to have a, a, 
say, a taste for joy. I mean, the word wisdom in Latin is sapientia, which is related to the word for flavor, to, to taste something. Something has a, like sabor in Spanish. It's got a flavor. So wisdom is like knowing the taste <laughs> of something. So in isolation, I'm, I'm sort of acquiring, I'm like cleansing the palate, we could maybe mm -hmm. say. You know, I'm, I'm trying to avoid the distractions that prevent me from recognizing the presence of something. So that then when I go right back into the world, I will be able for at least a while to recognize more quickly what's really happening, where, how someone sort of shines with the glory of God. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the goal. How to do that? Yeah. I mean, that, that is. I mean, it is a, a matter of of assessing one's own joys and sorrows. I think of also reflecting on. I think especially things that are beautiful. So like, uh, so religious art, religious texts, things that are like the stories we've shared. Things that are memorable. The more we think about them and we we make them part of our thinking, then uh, more habitually, when I go into the world. Mm -hmm. I'll be able to have access to them without having to retreat, you know, like when I, yeah. when I, you know, like if you're, if you're a doctor working in the emergency room, you don't have time to go look up the thing. Yeah. You, you, there are certain things you got to know, you know, in a way that's what the solitude is kind of for. And people can tell, I mean, as a priest, when I'm dealing with the faithful, they can usually tell whether I am having a, a time of good solitude and prayer or not in my ability to respond to them. You know, mm -hmm. they, they can, they can feel it too. And, and my ability to understand this person's needs, I've found almost always is related to my ability to understand my own issues, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. my own attention in meditation. Yeah. So, well, good luck yeah. to us. Yeah. yeah. It's a good task. <laughs> yeah. And we have the rest of our lives to keep working on that. Well, there's so much more we could have talked about, but I would like to thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Father Stephen Gregg, for your time and your insights. I encourage all of our listeners to read the article, The Only Real Solitude, The Pain and Power of Being Alone, it's available on the Renovatio site, as well as in the print. Thank you again. And thank you for joining us on the Renovatio podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful to talk about these issues. Mm -hmm.